You're listening to the Footnotes Podcast, the weekly sermon companion from the teaching team at Real Life. This is a chance to dig a little deeper, chase a few rabbit trails, and touch on some topics that the team may have not been able to fit into their Sunday sermons. We hope this provides a glimpse behind the scenes at the discussion that helps form each week's message. Welcome to Footnotes. I'm Paul Patterson, the Moscow Student Ministries coach, and the only other person in the room today is Aaron. Hello. So it's just us two this week. Uh, Marty, I believe, is traveling, right? Yeah, he's out on his uh, fundraising, doing the stuff he actually gets paid for. So there you go. Uh, so yeah, just us two. So it may not be as much fun, or it might be more fun. I don't know. We'll be un- a little bit less hindered. Uh, this week we looked at Romans six one through fourteen. A lot is happening here, and as as normal, we never have time to really sift through all the layers. So one thing we wanted to do first off is to discuss a little bit uh, about the baptism itself that Paul is referring to. Um, And so, first off, did you want to do immersion? Go ahead. Okay. So, we we wanted to look at uh, that this is one of those passages that makes it pretty clear that baptism is through immersion. Now, the original word baptism is uh, baptizo in the Greek, and it meant to dip, to sink, to, to immerse, you can find it used in extra uh, outside of the Bible in things like pickle recipes, um, in dyeing of cl- clothing, in shipwrecks, and in even in battle situations where you sink your sword into someone else. And almost every time it's used, it applies some type of permanent change. Whatever is being baptized is somehow permanently changed. Uh, and obviously, if you're going to be buried with Jesus if you want to understand baptism as being a sprinkling or a pouring, that really doesn't quite work uh, with this analogy that Paul is is using this week. Uh, Baptism here uh, is is obviously has this idea of immersion, that we are buried, that that we sink, that we are dipped and immersed into Jesus. Any any thoughts on that, Aaron? I think you're on point. I, I just think it's interesting that he's using baptism as this picture of life and death, like this moment of change, and and there are just so many layers where this this whole section appeals back to the creation story, which we'll get to in a little while. But it it's it's an interesting connection that this is his case for why we're wrestling with this question: Are we free to sin? The answer is no. Why? Well, life and death is illustrated through baptism, and so that's kind of where it begins. I, I think it's interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, before we go where you're saying that we're going to go, um, you wanted to look a little bit at some of the words that Paul was using here. Um, and what I was thinking, uh, what I was telling you is this is one of those passages when I'm explaining baptism. I like to pull out, and one thing I like to point out to whoever is being, who's, whoever's interested in being baptized is to look at the language Paul uses here. He talks about uh, being buried with Jesus, dying with Jesus, being united with Jesus, raising uh, up to new life with Jesus. This is an, this is deeply personal for uh, for Paul. Uh, that baptism is not just a a ritual and not just an initiation. It's it's something we actually do to tie ourselves to Jesus. And I think as we get further on in the discussion uh, of the image of baptism and the image of creation and the other things that we get into, it becomes even more. Um, even more juicy since Derek's not here to roll his eyes at that. <laughs> yeah, right on. So we want to go through some of the words? Sure. Yeah, what were some of the... So there were just some um, some phrases. Obviously, when we're, when we're talking about 
death and life, and, and this will be made mention of in the sermon, but when we're talking about death and life, we're not talking about physical death and life. We're talking about, like, when when death enters the picture in the creation story, it's not, like, they don't actually die. Now, we can say, well, they're going to die later, but <clears throat> there is a death that takes place there. And what is that? And there's these acts that lead to death and acts that lead to life. Um so that we're, it makes a statement here for if we have been united with him in his, in a death like his, the word for united, there's the word, uh, sumphatos. And, and what it means is of a joint origin, kind of of the same nature, like con, congen, congenial, is that what they call it? The, uh, conjoined twins. Yeah. Um, the, that we're of the same, like our death is the same kind of death that Jesus experienced. Um, and so because of that, our life is the same kind of life that Jesus, Jesus experienced. Like it's the same kind of thing. Um, our dying of our old self is the same kind of death as like, like his death was. And, and so this word, uh, one thing you said, it, it's unique. I think you said it's only used here. It's the only time that's used in the entire new Testament. Um, which is, that's a thing. And one of the possible translations, uh, I think you said the King James uh, said that it can mean planted. Yeah, that we're planted with him. Like we're we're the same kind of we're of the same kind of seed. Like our death comes from the same genetic code as his death. Our death comes from the same uh, guts, the same ethos, the same. It's the same. Same loins. Same, yeah. It's I, I, there's so many ways to to say that, and they all get weird in a hurry. <laughs> but um, but it, the, it's important that we like we're of the same nature when we've chosen to walk this life, and that's why he goes on to say we shall certainly be united with him in his, in a resurrection. Which the the word that it, united is not in the Greek there. Um, it's what it says. If we've been like been united with him in a death like his, so much so with life. In resurrection, that, that's kind of what it drives at it. That even more so with life, it's almost like the Kala Homer, like we talked about last week. Hmm. If if we've been united with him like this in his death, how much more in his life? Yeah, and I think Paul definitely this week is building off of that from last week. Like, if all that be true, then where does the rubber meet the road? Right. And uh, as as we said in the sermon, he's going to use baptism because they've already said yes to this. Like you've already said yes, and this is where this is where it matters. Yeah. Now, a couple of other things. Just uh, when it says we know that our old self was crucified with him, what is that? Our old self. The word, the Greek word there is the word anthropos, which is um, anthropology is the study of man. It's a it's a big broad term, like our old humanity, uh, and it's without question a, a throwback to the connection that of all mankind to Adam. That's kind of how they would talk about. Adam and creation and understanding mankind, uh, our old mankindness, our old humanity, which is absolutely consistent with the fact that they've been using Adam as an illustration here. Hmm. I, what I love about this passage is how it continues to build on the fact that Paul was using Adam in Romans 5 and, and this death that Adam brings. And then he starts appealing to all these lessons that we learn from the creation story in Romans six, like don't forget that all the death lessons we learned, yeah, and the difference between life and death there. That in the story that's already been told, you don't have to tell the story in yourself. 
Then it says, our old self was crucified with him in order that, and that is um, the Greek word hena. Now, anytime that the word hena is followed by the subjunctive, what that means grammatically is that the next two things that are described are two things that happen simultaneously. Mm-hmm. This shows up several places in the Bible, but um, it says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. So the next two things are that the body of sin is brought to nothing and that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And that's critical because I think a lot of people give them give their life to Christ and because they want to do away with, they want to make the body of sin brought to nothing in their life, but they still act as if they're enslaved to sin. They yeah. don't have a choice. So, uh, and you pointed out uh, the word nothing here uh, isn't actually nothing. and In the Greek, it doesn't mean nothing. Yeah, it's means. rendered impotent would be an even better way to understand yeah. it. it. All of its powers, all of its life has been sucked out of it. All of mm-hmm. the the passion, the focus, the energy, everything that it could be, it, it's taken away. It doesn't have any strength left. Yeah. The, the, the analogy that I would use, the word picture is, if you remember the old uh, Looney Tunes cart- cartoons, there was, a, there was a cartoon where Daffy Duck found a turkey that these people were trying to fatten up the turkey for Thanksgiving, and, and Daffy Duck was hungry. So he convinced the turkey that they were going to kill him for Thanksgiving. So he made the turkey stay lean and work out. And and at the end of the thing, the turkey is just this skinny, scrawny little thing, and he's barely able to stand. Daffy Duck's all fat because he's been eating all the food that the turkey was supposed to eat. So they decided to try to kill the duck. <laughs> but uh, it, it that that's that picture of this weak, useless, powerless, limp thing standing there. Um, that is what this life... In Christ, his resurrection brought the body of sin and made it powerless. So I worked at a church before, and this just popped in my mind. Um, like how, man, if from, okay, so I'm telling this story because I'm sure a lot of people will relate to this story. Uh, I worked at a church before where they actually held to a doctrine called the crisis doctrine. That when you come to Christ, you are free from the guilt of your sin, but you're not free from the power of sin yet. That has to come later. And if you just saw Aaron's eyes, they squinted. Um, but <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. And so I bring this up, and I, I only have access to certain pieces of what the Holy Spirit does in my life, not all of it. <laughs> well, so I bring this up because I think uh, that sounds crazy. But how often have we been taught? That sin is still present in our life, that it still rules our life, that it's still, that it's this thing we can't get away from. Well, and Paul's going to address that issue coming up in Romans 7. He's going to address this issue, like, what do I do with the, but the fact is, there is this thing that sin, there is sin, sin still at work in the world that I live in. What do I do with that? And what, he, what I love about what Paul does is he separates me from sin. Mm-hmm. He says, "What I what I see is this work, this lot work in me. Wherever I go, uh, their sin is at work with me. But the sin isn't me. Mm-hmm. There's a separation there between the two. And so, what we have to decide is, what God says I am, that's the truth. Yep. And and so, when sin tries to get us to believe a lie, and say that I'm something else, and so I need, I'm not enough, or I need this." thing that God says is sin in order for me to be whatever I need to be. Sin says that, but sin is lying, but sin is not me. 
And the more that I say, well, I'm just a sinner, uh, I reinforce the lie that sin is a part of me. Sin is not a part of me. The me, the real me, the true me is what God says I am. And that's really critical for us to get that the only power that sin has in my life is what I choose to give it, whether I'm walking with Christ or not, because it's not the truth of me. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Not uh, It's crazy talk. It's crazy making. All right. So go bringing it back to baptism, uh, <laughs> what, what we will find in other places uh, are these other deep pictures, these... Uh, these other layers to baptism. So like uh, one place uh, Peter says in first Peter three, uh, he, he equates, he doesn't equate, it's not the right word, but uh, he ties the picture of baptism to the flood that we are saved through the waters. Uh, not necessarily that the water saves us, but we are saved from the waters as, as Noah and his family are. Um, so that, that's one of the pictures you'll see that. Uh, so when we are baptized, um, we are in somehow connected uh, to the story of the flood. And then Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, he'll, he will connect baptism again to the Red Sea, uh, that as the people were saved through the water, um, once again, the water didn't save them, it was that they were saved through the water. Uh, so, so are we through baptism. And then when you look at the uh, baptism of Jesus, it's very clear that the writers of the Gospels are attempting to tie you back to Genesis 1, that the, that the Spirit comes down is, and is hovering over the waters, uh, this picture of the watery deep. Um, and I think you, probably, you could probably say something to the way the Jews pictured the watery deep. Well, water, bodies of water, remember the Jews are always desert people, but the ancient world... Deep bodies of water, cracks in the ground, crevices, those kinds of things are places where spirits come and go from the underworld. So they refer to water as the abyss. Um, that's a that's an evil place. It's one of the reasons why only unschooled people were fishermen because it was kind of the like if you can't if you're not smart enough to do anything else, that's what you do. Because if you have any ability to do something else, you you don't would never get on the water. That's where all the bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it in connection to the ministry of Jesus, every time they get on the water to go across the lake, what happens? You know, a storm comes up, mm-hmm. um, and they almost die. They think because. Of course, if Jesus is going over to do spiritual business, this would be an image that would arise, you know. Um, Which is why when he walks on water, when he stills the waves, like the, the, his disciples automatically are connecting that with, um, not just with his power over the abyss, but also with a lot of Psalms yeah. that, that uses the same language. Yeah, and that God is the only one. That, and that's why the calming, of the, the calming of the Sea of Galilee is so funny to me, because if you think about the stuff that they've seen Jesus do. They watched him raise people from the dead. They watched him turn water into wine. They watched him feed 5,000 people with a sack lunch. I mean, they've watched him do some pretty incredible things, heal lepers. Um, They've watched him do all kinds of stuff. And it's calming the storm that they're like, oh, who is this? Yeah. Like, that's the one that freaks them out, which is funny to me. Um, But if you know your text, you know that it says that God is the one who calms the storms. And and the, and stills the waves. Yeah. So so to set up the question for you, um, so with all that understanding of the abyss, how would you tie that to baptism? I don't know what you're asking me. So uh, in my mind, then um, 
and this is, I guess, more of an analogy that I'm, I'm trying to make, uh, in the same way that we die with Christ, uh, we descend into the waters, but we rise from it. Um, it makes me think of Genesis. It makes sure. me think of sure. the separation of the waters, the separation of the land from the waters. It makes me think of the flood, the undoing of creation, but then the separation yet again, that, that life does come from the abyss, that it can. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had never thought of that until just this moment. That's good. Um, and so as such, baptism, uh, even on a simple level, yeah, it's beautiful and it's gorgeous and it's in- incredibly personal. But much more than that, we, when we are baptized, we are connecting ourselves to this deep, long, redemptive story of God and his active work in the world of attempting to save it and redeem it. Um, baptism is one way that we to use the word earlier, conjoin ourselves with that. Um, we are planted into it. Yep. Yeah, I like that analogy. That's good. So uh, let's take this Adam and Eve thing and go a little bit further. We were talking about uh, the trees of Genesis. Um, you have the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and so when Paul who just comes off the discussion of Adam, starts talking of life and death, um, a, a good Hebrew is going to have, uh, he, he's already going to have Genesis in mind. He's already going to be seeing two different trees. And so we want to talk a little bit about the tree of knowledge of good and evil and, um, and how that applies to the discussion this week. And so I think I'm just going to kick it to you and let you run for a okay. second. So the, there's two trees mentioned in Genesis 3 that... Um, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Interestingly enough, if you uh, read the the Hebrew text carefully, what you find is that it says that the tree of life is in the center of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is also there. It does not say that it's in the center of the garden. And uh, David Foreman actually points this out. Um, he said it's important to note that while it was not in the center of the garden, it became the center of Eve's garden, which is kind of this this thing that leads to death the part that leads to death is this fixation on on the wrong thing on on not life there's there's so many ways to play with this and i i think paul is without question playing with this metaphor in romans 6 uh from the creation story but um when when the snake comes to eve which if you know anything about creation stories from other cultures, this is without question a pre-existent creation story that uh, the writer of Genesis is redeeming, and I love the way he does it. Uh, the, the, two, the two trees there, he, he says, well, did God really say um, that the snake was supposed to pre- pre- present this tree of knowledge, and that was supposed to make her better? And what God is saying in, in Genesis 3, in my opinion, is Knowledge of good and evil is not what's going to make you better. Being willing to trust the story that I'm telling you in your life. It, it's the, you know, there's my part, there's God's part. It's me trying to do God's part in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, this, if God wanted me to have this knowledge, he would let me have it. Um, now, there's so many ways to spin that, but at, at its basic level, um, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, this can be the, the pursuit of knowing, well, God, why don't you want me to do this? Hmm. Why don't you want me to steal? What, why, why is it so wrong for me to, to 
use drugs? Why is it so wrong? For whatever, whatever it is. Why is it so wrong for me to lie? Um, why is it so wrong for me to commit adultery? What, what's the, why can't I do that? We want to know why God says that. And so we go experience it so we can experience the negative side of it. Um, the, you know, that's a, that's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place that interrupts acts that lead to life. It interrupts the things that we should be about because ultimately God's agenda is about my investment in the life of other people. It's not about me making me awesome. Hmm. It doesn't mean I don't work towards making me awesome. It means I don't focus on that only. My Any self-improvement is for the purpose of building up the community, hmm. which is important. That's, that's acts that lead to life. So in my mind, I went a little philosophical with that. Weird. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, I, f- I find today that we, we, we do question these uh, self-evident truths uh, of love and human value and things like that. And so when we start questioning these things, we spiral really quickly into behavior that... And I think Paul even toys with that in the beginning of Romans... Like, well, absolutely. He's, yeah. he's fixated. It, although they knew him as God, they neither glorified him as God or gave him thanks. Mm-hmm. But they started to turn to other things and worship created things rather than the creator. And as such, God gave them over to their deprived mind. Like, um, And Paul will come back to that in Romans 2, uh, in Romans 12, to offer the solution to that, which is funny. And this goes back to what you just said. Are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust when he does say these things lead to life, these things lead to death, and you don't, you don't necessarily need to know why, you don't need to question them, but will you trust him? Yeah. Not that questioning, I think, is wrong. It's Questioning's not wrong. It's the pursuit of the other side to prove whether or not it's right or wrong. Yes. I'm gonna pr- I don't trust you, Lord. I'm going to do this myself. And, and the, the truth is, if you'll walk with the Lord... And, and it's not about a moral code. It's about these principles that are at stake. Like generosity is a creational reality. All of creation is designed to be generous to yep. the rest of creation. And we must fall in line with that. Forgiveness is a creational law. It's, it's a principle that must govern our life. And as soon as we refuse to forgive, we choose to step outside regardless of the moral code that we follow. We can say, I have a high moral code, I don't lie, I pay my taxes, when I say I'm going to do something, I do it, but I hold bitterness over somebody else, and I've broken all of the creational code. James will say, if you violate one piece of the law, you violated all of it. And so that that's the, like, there's these principles at stake that are so much more important than the moral code itself. Mm-hmm. Like, I can, I can be a moral man and yet have an anger problem, be mean to my wife and kids. And I missed the whole point. I still had acts that lead to death. Yeah. Well, and even as someone who's um, been in ministry for a while, I think, I think, I think C.S. Lewis said that anyone who uh, has been in leadership in ministry knows the temptation of, of hypocrisy. Um, we know what it's like to pretend that we have it together. Um, like that's a real temptation. Like we want to pretend we we those real things we struggle with. We don't we don't want to get into because yeah. And unfortunately, the church perpetuates darkness rather than light. Sometimes. Well, yeah. We church is one of the only institutions that eats its wounded. Yeah. Uh, shoots its wounded. You know, I I. Uh, it's interesting to me 
when you said that, like we want to have this assumption that we get it all together, that we don't, we aren't messed up somewhere. One of the temptations that I have become aware of in my own life that I was surprised was there, but it's there, is when I present a truth from God's word and someone comes to me to talk to me about it, I talk about it as if I have that truth totally figured out. Now, I am openly willing to admit that I have struggles elsewhere, but if I've preached about it, I have it dialed. Hmm. And and that it, which is it's just a nuance of that that I'm like, yeah, that's uh that's wrong. That's pretty yucky of me <laughs> actually. Um so that that's the that's the dance there. It's not just that we act like we don't have any mistakes. It's that we act like we would have anything fully figured out. Like mm-hmm. I'm pretty much like God on this one. Like me and Jesus were kind of the same person. <laughs> um All right, so I wanted uh you kind of presented your view. I wanted to entertain a couple other ideas of what the tree of knowledge could be. Sure. So foreman uh I believe and someone can correct me. Um the foreman I think presents it as Adam and Eve choosing for themselves that they that they will decide what what is good and what is evil that and this I think still relates to what you said like um, Adam and Eve aren't going to trust God's standard they're not going to trust his definition of good so they're going to take it upon themselves um, does that make sense or I think it relates to you yeah I, and I don't disagree with that I uh it's it's interesting like the the knowledge of good and evil can't be academic it, it can't be academic it can't be like i didn't know that there was anything right or wrong and then now i do cuz i ate some fruit like that can't be the way it actually functioned because they obviously have an awareness of right and wrong she knows that it's wrong to violate god's law she knows what his command is and that it's right to follow it so that at some level they have an awareness of good and evil <clears throat> The question is, what is it that the pursuing of this knowledge of good and evil is up to? And I and I think that's a viable option, that it's them trying to decide it for themselves. Okay. Um, another idea, and this kind of goes more back to the snake, but I've heard, I think I heard this through Marty. Uh, and not, I'm not saying this is his idea, but I heard this idea through him, that the snake is attempting to uh, uh, seduce Eve. That he that the tree uh, actually acts as a temptation for Eve to believe she's just an animal. Yeah, that is David Foreman's position on the snake. Oh, okay. Uh, is that the snake is um, the snake is there trying to take the position of ruler? The snake wants, um, and there's a there's a, a the word the snake was the craftiest of all the jungle animals. Which comes from naked. Yeah, and they're tied. They're connected. It was the most. It what that means is it's the most like Adam and Eve and all of the rest of the garden. The, because in two twenty five, the last verse of Genesis two, it states the man and wife were naked and felt no shame. Right. And then verse one of chapter three, the snake was the most naked of the animals. Yeah. Now the problem with that is the difference between Adam and Eve and the animals is, and this is critical is that the animals only have the ability to follow their impulses. They're only natural. Adam and Eve are given a piece of God that says, you have the capacity to choose the right. You're not just a victim of your impulses. And culture has really tried to eliminate that. Like, I I actually love that that piece. Yeah. Well, and and that that theme of animals, the separation of animals and man is so crucial in Genesis. It doesn't just show up. 
um, in Genesis three shows up in Genesis two uh, when Adam needs a, needs a helper and there is no helper found suitable for him in in all the animals. A uh, valuable lesson that God's trying to teach Adam there. And then even in Genesis one, he says he creates all the animals on the sixth day and then he creates man. Um, like Genesis is trying to hit us over and over again that we're not animals. Yeah, we're not only natural. Yeah, there's a stroke of the divine in us. Yeah, to I heard someone say, um, we are soil and spirit. Yeah, we're the union of the two. Yeah, that's one way to to understand the creation story is that it starts at the extremities of soil and spirit and builds towards a union, which is ultimately mankind, which is where heaven meets earth. Which, yeah, which is where heaven meets earth. Um. Oh man, that's a whole nother uh, quick tangent, and then we'll get back on topic. You'll you'll always find heaven and earth being used as contrasts, not heaven and hell. Like, and I just found that interesting that it's like you won't find heaven and hell in the same sentence for the most part, but you'll find heaven and earth in the same sentence all the time, because for heaven the opposite of is earth, and God is attempting to undo that. And this is why we say we need to bring heaven crashing to earth. He's trying to reunite them. Yeah. If you think about two circles that are perfectly overlapping, sin separates the circles. Uh, The redemption of all things is trying to reunite them. Yeah. Which goes back to the tree then representing this temptation of we're just physical. Um, and, And for people that might be listening to this thinking, oh, I don't struggle with that temptation. How often do we say that's just me? Or I can't change, or like we, like we'll say things like that, like oh, I can't control myself, or I'm only human, yeah, or the devil made me do it, or I'm not Jesus, yeah, or whatever excuse we give to self-justify, yeah. Um, so then another idea of the tree of knowledge, well, uh, another idea of the tree of knowledge and good and evil is, uh, well, we can just throw it out there. We can throw out the Catholic idea. Go ahead. Um, that it is sex. What do, you, what do you think of that? I think I'm going to let you talk about that. So I don't want people to be mad at me. So at first, <laughs> when I first heard this, I, th- I thought it was ridiculous. So any Catholics out there, I apologize. Uh, the idea that the tree of knowledge of good and evil represented sex uh, made no sense to me. Um, like, why, why would God make those parts of our body the most... Yeah, sensitive sources of pleasure ever, and then say, "Oh, that's wrong." Um, it just didn't make sense to me, especially in the blessing uh, when He blessed us in Genesis one for us to procreate and us for us to multiply and be fruitful and fill the earth. Um, that that didn't make sense to me. However, I I do find it interesting. We were talking about other creation narratives. Uh, I believe in the Enuma Elish, which is a, a Mesopotamian. Uh, creation uh, mythology that these people in Genesis, reading Genesis for the first time, many of them would be familiar with. You find a tree of life in that story, uh, but then you also find a tree of knowledge, and the fruit of the tree of knowledge is a, uh, is a vagina. And there's this picture that this, that this knowledge comes through sex, which got me wondering if then in this Genesis narrative of God is attempting to say, like yeah, sex is good and it has its proper place and it's it's needed for mankind. But when we mistrust and misuse and and violate sex, uh, it ends up having huge consequences on our relationships and our own identity. Sex then later becomes this 
integral part of other uh, religious systems and other idol worship and things like that. Uh, like we we quickly tie uh, consciously or subconsciously sex to so many things in our life. Well, I do think without question there's a, a intricate tie between sexuality and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Like regardless of your religious faith, there is a intimate tie between sexuality and spirituality. They're they're very closely connected. So, well, I w- I would say I don't agree with that theory. I do think there's more there's a, there's things to be gleaned from that theory. That's just my position, yeah. though. And I would say, regardless of the position that you're in, it's not about finding the right theory. It's right, about yes. saying there are some themes and layers to this that I think maybe are deserve exploring. And you're right. Um, I mean, so little is said about the tree of knowledge. It, it's there, briefly mentioned, and then the story's done. And we're not, we're not even explained how it happens. And I, I think that's partly the point. We don't need to know how it happens. It's... The, the position it holds within the narrative and the pivot point uh, that we need to pay attention to. Um, I think I might dock it over here. I got everything discussed that we need to discuss. Tim, any other ideas or comments? No, it's good. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, thank you guys for joining us this week on Footnotes. Um, keep studying, keep getting in the text. And until next week, God bless. Thanks for listening to this week's Footnotes. And please keep the discussion going. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can connect with us by emailing comment at liferotp.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at liferotp. You can find the individual members of the teaching team on Twitter as well, or just visit us on a Sunday morning and connect face-to-face. We hope you'll join us again next week. And until then, God bless.